The hymn is number 112, number 112. And let's stand together and we sing grace alone. Every promise we can make, every prayer and step of Number 285 is probably a little more familiar. I will sing of my Redeemer.
Lord, take my hand. I started that in the wrong key. Sorry about that. And let's stand together while we sing this one. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Ushers, you come as we sing. we thank you tonight for the way you bless us, the way you take care of us, and the way you uh, guide us through our day today. We pray that you'll bless this time of offering. Pray that you'll bless both the one who gives and the gift itself as it goes around the world to share the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.
the video here. And honestly, I ain't sure about going. Everyone had told me India was all dreams at the same time. Hot and cold, modern and old, rich and poor. Would I be one of those who loved it or hated it? My chance to find out came when I was asked to go to India to experience one of the world's largest religious gatherings. After days of travel, I made it to the city of Haridwaj, where the Kumbh Mela festival happened every three years at the Ganges and the Yuma rivers. To be honest, when I heard that there was going to be 30 million people here, I was nervous. Am I going to be able to get around? What will people think of me? But I discovered it was similar to many of the festivals around the world. Families came together, some traveling thousands of miles to get here. They celebrated with food, games, splashing in the Ganges, and the well of death. Craziest thing I've ever seen. So there I am, standing at the Ganges, watching thousands of people strip down to their swim clothes to dip in the water to get rid of their sin. And that was heaven. These people were formerly wicked Lankaradis, one of the world's dirtiest villages, looking for salvation. They have been told this water will wash away their sin and will give them eternal life. This was hard. To see all these faces that seemed to be filled with joy, yet seeking that joy in a river. And I was convicted. How often do I get so captivated in created things that I forget the creator? That was my prayer as I boarded the plane here. That I would not forget my Creator, and those worshiping His rivers would come to know Him. There is a festival, the largest festival in the world, is held in India every year. And if you're a Hindu, you're to make your pilgrimage there to the Ganges River, which is just a filthy river. And Hindus believe 30 million a year go, and it's around this time of the year, they go there believing it washes away their sins. So that reminds us of the lostness of our world. It also reminds us of the great gospel need in other parts of the world, not just certainly here in Lexington, but it also opens up our eyes. If you have your Bible, and you always want to bring your Bible to church, especially on Sunday night, because we certainly read the Bible. I love Sunday night church. Uh, you get, I get more time. Uh, uh, Luke chapter 23. Also, you need your bulletin insert, so you've got time to run back there and grab your bulletin so you can follow along and see some of the things going on. What is the least amount I have to do to go to heaven? So we're going to answer that question. While you turn your Bibles, Luke chapter 23, we're going to see about Jesus' crucifixion and death is what tying this in with Easter. I'm going to give you an update the next. This is what I call a normal Sunday night, meaning David Dell leads this uh, in worship. I preach a sermon. The next normal Sunday night service we have at our church is June 2nd. And I'm about to go over the schedule right here. Now, you need to come to all the ones I'm about to name, but there's in, different things are about to be going on. 
Let's go through the schedule. If you want to write it down, you can. I've memorized it. Next Sunday is Easter. We celebrate the empty tomb. He is risen. We do not have Sunday evening worship on Easter. You need to invite your family and friends to church Sunday morning, and you need to go home and cook for them or go wait two hours at Olive Garden. That's what you need to do. I drove by. Dad, my, you know, Sherry's in Washington, D.C., so Dad's here, so that means um, <clears throat> we have to go out to eat because we can't cook. So, although Dad was a cook in the Army, so, um, but that's not the same. So we were driving by Dicklesville Road, and... Olive Garden was packed, packed, probably some of you were there, so I mean, it was unbelievable how many folks were there, and we even got out early this morning, it was still packed, uh, but uh, next Sunday, there's no Sunday evening worship service, two weeks from tonight is April 28th, we're calling this Missions Night, I'm going to have about three different uh, speakers that are going to share about missions, one is going to be, and we're going to collect a special offering that night, for Miss Peggy Cable. Peggy, raise your hand right here. So Peggy is one of our church members, and she is a missionary in Uganda, and she's going to be here, what's about middle of June or so, so she'll be here, and she's going to share about her work there. You know, I was reading in the Baptist press that IMB has made a recommitment to Uganda, so they're at Ugandan Baptist Seminary, so they are doing an extensive work in Uganda. The need is overwhelming. I want to tell you about Uganda. Uganda has a population of 40 million people. I was reading about this yesterday. In the next 30 years, it's going to double to 80 million. It, the birth rate is unbelievable in sub-Saharan Africa. Uganda is right there. And it's a small country, so it is dense, densely populated. So we're going to hear about that. We've got some other mission opportunities in our church that are going to be hearing about too. But that's in two weeks on the 28th. May 5th, Chris Wright, here in the back, Chris, raise your hand. Chris has... Uh, put together the Broadway Praise Team and Worship Band. They are making their debut on Sunday night, May 5th. They're doing what we call Night of Worship. It's a concert. It's a preview concert to try to figure out if they know what they're doing for June 2nd when the second worship service starts. It's going to be a blessing. We're excited about that. Our band practices at 7.30 on Wednesday night, so this will be their first time to play on night of worship. So it's going to be about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minute concert uh, that evening on May 5th. May 12th is Mother's Day. Again, that's a time you need to take Mama out, bring her to make sure you come to church with Mama. And if you have children, you bring your kids to church and your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Then you have an opportunity that evening. We do not have evening worship service on Mother's Day, that morning, we are having baby dedication. If you have a baby that needs to be dedicated, I need to talk to you ASAP so I can get your information for baby dedication for that. So no evening worship service on Easter, no evening worship service on Mother's Day. May 19th is going to be the Awana Awards celebration. Instead of starting at 6 o'clock, it's going to start at 5.30. It's going to last about a, uh, 45 minutes, an hour or so. Then right after that, we have our bi-monthly business meeting. So you need to come that night. You see the Awana children come up on the stage. They get their awards. They sing their songs. You hear about Awana's going on right now at our church. And they are right here below us and all over in these buildings. And you'll hear about how they have been learning scripture the past year. And they'll be getting up on the stage. So Adrian Carroll and Trish Lyons will be sharing about that. We have business meeting that night. May 26th. 
is Memorial Day weekend, but we've got something special planned that night. At 4.30, we have a church-wide barbecue. The men's ministry is going to cook for you. All you have to do is show up and eat. We're going to have it at 4.30. It's, uh, um, it's an early time, but that we're, we're anticipating the reason why. That's Memorial Day weekend, and a lot of folks might eat very light or no lunch, and they come at 4.30 have a big barbecue, might have some games out here, just meat, lo- if, you know, if men's ministry is involved, it's meat lovers delight, so that's going to be on May 26th, the entire church, it's free, you need to invite everybody you know to come, <clears throat> Bob Painter cooked for me, so that, uh, they'll have a, a great time for that, June 2nd, that morning service, we have our new service starts, our new service times are 9, 10, 11, 09. and guess what, it's at 6 o'clock, a normal church service. So that's our the next normal service that you have right here is going to be June 2nd. So we'll pick up going through the Gospel of Luke on June 2nd. So that's your Sunday evening schedule next six, seven weeks here. I want you to attend Sunday night crowds, the worker crowd. Um, we have now got our VBS, and y'all need to be planners because VBS starts nine weeks from tomorrow. And I want you all to do this. You can do it now on your phone during the sermon if it's boring, or you can go home on your computer and do this. You need to sign up as a leader, or you can go ahead and sign your children up. Nancy Crawford is our VBS director. Now, what happens, you go on the church website, and you click on the roar, the lion, and it takes you over there, and you need to sign up as a leader. Now, there's some drop-down categories, and if you don't see what you want, you just select something, and then there's a comment section. For example... We all, we're, our goal, we're playing for 300 children, and we're going to reach it. I'm, fa- I'm no confident we will. We, last year, we, I think our high night was 220, I believe, 224 was where we topped, and we think we can step it up and go another level. But we feed all these children, so if you're working the kitchen, it takes about 50 folks to feed people in the kitchen. You need to sign up so Miss Nancy Crawford knows she's already putting people in different positions. Listen, if you're doing sound, you're doing security, you're doing kitchen, you're doing cleanup, however you want to help with VBS. Typically, at Bible school at this church, we have 300 children and 125 workers. So, but the workers are what make it happen. The workers are you. You look around. So, we're the workers. So, you need to sign up. Bible school at this church is June 17th through 21st from 6 to 9 p.m. It's a must-attend event, great gospel opportunity. So go on the internet this week and let Nancy know, sign up as a leader, and, um, and go ahead and, and, and get, get the spots you want, how you want to help out with that. All right, that is your Sunday evening schedule and your call to action, what you need to be doing. Open your Bibles, Luke chapter 23. We're going to go through here, and when we get to the thief on the cross, we're going to answer the question, what is the least amount I have to do to go to heaven. Could you imagine answering that question? What's the least passing grade? Do you know in um, school, in um, undergraduate school, in college, a 60 is is considered a D minus. That is the bare minimum passing grade. If you get a 60 on your class, you barely squeak by it's a D minus. You don't have a good GPA, but you pass the class. And that is what we call a bare minimum. Now, in graduate school, that 60 passing moves up to a 70. I think in law school, it's an 80. So it just keep, the bar keeps getting higher and higher and higher 
uh, for your passing grade for that. So, but what happens, though, is for us, it's tempting for us to say, what is the least amount I have to do to go to heaven and be a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, the problem what we're going to see here is that question is a problem right there. If we're asking that question, and if we approach gospel sharing, if you approach VBS, if you approach missions, if you go to India and share with the 30 million people who are at this uh, river to wash away their sins, and you're walking in there and you're thinking, what is the least amount I have to do to see someone saved? And it's just a quick prayer that they mumble and they don't even know what they're saying. That is, uh, that's the problem. And we're going to be able to answer that and because Jesus answered this question on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 13. Follow along in your Bibles right here. This is about a gentleman named Barabbas. I want to give you some background information. Where are we at in this? What's going on is Jesus has already gone first to the Sanhedrin. First he went to the chief priest. Then he went to the Sanhedrin. Then he got sent from the Sanhedrin to Pilate. Then from Pilate he got sent over to Herod. Then Herod, he didn't say a single word to Herod, so Herod sent him back to Pilate. So now we're back to Pilate. Why are we at Pilate? The reason why is because the Romans could execute someone. The Jewish people, even though they had in their law they were able to execute people, the Romans would not allow them to do that. So if you wanted someone killed, you wanted to get rid of somebody, you had to get them in the Roman court system. That would be the court system of execution. So that's where we see this going on here. And there's a gentleman, a murderer named Barabbas, who's going to be uh, also, he's on death row along with Jesus right here. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders in the people, and he said to them, you've brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with the things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore I will have him whipped and release him. So that's the courtesy whipping. Everybody gets a whip, whipping. You get to the court system, we've we got to do something to you. So we're just going to whip the guy. For, for, for my, um, you know, it's like if you have wild, disobedient children, and they're misbehaving, and you just want to give them a spanking, and they say, well, what's my spanking for? So I know maybe last week you disobeyed. You're just getting a spanking. That's kind of what happened here with what's going on with, with Jesus. Pilate just says, the fact that you're in court with me, you're going to get a spanking. Now you don't get that. You, it's not a spanking. It's a, it's a whipping. And it's, it's brutal. Nowadays, what do you get? You get a fine. If you go to court, even if you're innocent, you're going to pay some money. So that's, what, that's the difference. Well, in Bible times, you get beat with a whip. So, so he's going to get the standard whipping just for Pilate's time to even sit here and talk to you. But look what happens here. And I want you to, this is very important. Pilate finds this man, Jesus, who they're trying to kill. He knows this. He finds them innocent. Like there's no reason. Herod found him innocent. Jesus has done nothing wrong at this point. So look what happens here. Then they, who's they? This is the Jewish leaders who hate Jesus. Then they all cried out together, take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Barabbas was what we would call a rebel rouser. 
he murdered someone, and he also led a rebellion. Well, that would certainly find yourself on death row in Roman times, as well as Jewish times, leading a rebellion against Rome. So Barabbas was somebody who probably, since he murdered someone, he might deserve the death penalty. And here these Jewish folks are saying they know what happened is during Bible times, once a year, they released a prisoner during the Passover feast. So someone who's in prison would get released. And that's what we see here going on. During the Old Testament, during the Passover, at the temple where this practice came from, they would, re they would release a lamb. <coughs> he, would, he would just be the, uh, the sin offering there. So what's happening here is Jesus should be the one who's being released, but in fact it's not going to be Jesus. It's going to be Barabbas. The murderer is going to be released. He's going to be freed. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed them again. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I found him with no grounds for the deep death penalty. Therefore, I have them whipped and then release him. The challenge that Pilate had is he was one of these guys who had no backbone. He'd make a decision, but then when people gripe and complain about it, he'd change his mind. And what's happening is he said, I'm just going to whip the guy, give him his standard beating, and we'll let him go. But they are, say, they are in an uproar. Verse 23, but they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant them their demand and release the one they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for rebellion, this is Barabbas, and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. You know, you always ask the question, who's responsible for Jesus' death in this case here? Is it the Romans, Pilate? Or is it the Jews who demanded? And in many ways, the answer is both. Um, you know, throughout Christian history, uh, People of Rome have blamed the Jews, and Jewish folks have blamed the Romans for who's responsible. But what happened here is God's plan and purpose was for Jesus to die. So what occurred here is the Roman Pilate had no backbone. He could not, even after he made a decision, he could not change his mind. Or he could not keep what he had decided. The problem here with the Jews is they were on a mission they were going to kill Jesus. So both of them were in a position. You had one that were they weren't going to back down. And you had the other one who was just wishy-washy. He knew he, he could flip-flop. Keep going here. So look what happens. The way of the cross. As they led him away. So understand, Jesus is now. He's about to go. As they led him away, they seized Simon. I Cyrenian, from Cyrene. Okay, what happened here, as we know from the other gospel accounts, Jesus was mocked, beat, whipped, received lashes 39 times, had a crown of thorns, so now he's about to head out towards Golgotha. They go outside the city gates because you were not allowed to execute people within the city, so you just had to get outside the city gates, and then you would crucify someone. Well, Jesus was obviously weakened, 
from the um, abuse he had just occurred here from his beating. So what happens? Who's they? They are the Roman soldiers. We know later on we're going to see here a centurion soldier who's over other soldiers or is in charge of this. So this is how the Romans work. There's this man named Simon. That's from Cyrene, a Cyrenian. He's walking into the city. And he's coming into the city because he wants to observe, remember what's going on, they're, they're coming in to practice and to worship the Lord for the festival, Passover festival, and also the festival of Unleavened Bread, which is a one-week feast, remembering what happened in Exodus, what we've been studying on Wednesday nights. It's a one-week festival right after Passover. Well, the Romans, they're not going to carry a cross, and they're thinking, okay, poor Jesus, he's half dead, he can't carry the cross. Who are you, sir? Come here. They pulled him out of the crowd and said, you, pick up this man's cross and carry it. This guy, Simon, he found himself in the fortunate position right there to pick up Jesus' cross, and they're walking out of the city. This is what we call the Via del Rosa in Jerusalem today. This is the walking. A lot of times around this time of year, people sing that song, the Via del Rosa, <coughs> going towards the cross. And what's happening here is Jesus walking behind. Jesus walking along with this man who got seized. And he's got a crown towards him, dripping in blood. And they're probably whipping him to keep the procession going. And this other man's dragging the cross. That's what's going, that's the, uh, that's the, 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 the picture of what's going on here. So it says here, he was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lambing him. But turning to them, so Jesus is going to say some words now. He's going to speak to these women who are following Jesus. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the womb that never bore, and the breast that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. That's, a, that's from Hosea 10.8 there. If they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jesus just said, he's reminding them. This is occurring in 33 AD. In 27 years in the future, in AD 70, that'd be in 37 years in the future, AD 70, the Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem will cease to be as it is known during Jesus' time. Gone. And lots of casualties. If these folks are still alive in 37 years, they will most likely die. And Jesus is saying, here we are in the city of Jerusalem, and we're walking through this city that has gained such a reputation for crucifying the prophets. And here goes Jesus, the greatest prophet, being crucified as well. They do not realize, Jesus is saying, daughters of Jerusalem, women, listen, it's bad for me, obviously, but your city, as you know it, will cease to exist. And Judaism, as we know it, will be gone in 37 years when the Romans completely destroy Jerusalem. That's what he's saying there. He's not talking about the end times in Revelation. He's talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Keep going here in verse 32. 
two other criminals. Now we're on the cross. So Simon has carried, the picture of what we have here, Simon has carried the cross outside the city gates. Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with them. When they arrived at the place of the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Now, a, a biblical crucifixion is, it would look, a cross, most likely what it would look like is it would have been a, a capital T. And what it would have been is you they took nails and they put it in his hands and his feet. And then they would put a sign. So it might look like that with the sign on top of it. It would look very similar to that. Uh, and the, the, the sign on top of the cross would be your charge. It's a public execution saying, this is why we're crucifying this man. So Jesus is here in the middle, and we've got two other criminals who are right outside the city gates that getting crucified. Now we know from, from the Bible that they didn't go very far. The uh, site of crucifixion was right outside the gates. It wasn't like they're going to walk uh, half a mile out in the country. Remember, the Roman guards, they don't care. They just want to hurry up and get this over with. Here's a good spot. I'm not even going to carry the cross. Simon, throw the cross in the ground right here. We're going to nail this guy up and just let him die. And then he's going to get buried, at, the Bible says in John's account, in a tomb nearby. So that's, that's what's going on right outside the city gates. The Romans just knew they could not crucify someone based on Jewish law inside the city gates. So it was up to them. They certainly would crucify them inside of Jerusalem because Romans didn't follow Jewish law. But the Jewish folks would not allow that to happen. So that, that's our situation here. So look what happened. Here we are on the cross. And Jesus speaks from the cross. Look what he says in verse 30, 34. Now understand the Romans, the Romans are the ones nailing their hands in, nailing his hands and his feet up on the cross. The Jewish leaders, these Pharisees, these scribes and temple leaders, they're kind of standing on the back on the around, just making sure that it occurs that this man is crucified. And Jesus speaks while on the cross, and he says in verse 34, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. What Jesus is saying to their church is he's forgiving the people who are crucifying them. Have you ever been criticized? Have you ever had someone say something harsh to you? Have you ever had someone do something wrong to you and you've been a victim? You've been hurt? Do you feel like responding with, God, forgive this person? They don't even know what they're doing. Well, Jesus said that because they are killing God. That's what they're doing. They have no idea, understand the significance of the person they're crucifying. And he's asking God to forgive them. Jesus is praying for the people who are crucifying him. He sees the bigger picture of what's going on. They, they have been blinded and they do not comprehend this important act of all world history there. And it says here, they divided up his clothes and cast lots. That meant they gambled. They rolled some dice for his, his clothes there. Look at this. The people stood watching and the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Now these would be the Jewish leaders here. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Now that would be from a Jewish person would say that. The Romans would not call Jesus the chosen one or God's Messiah. So you know someone. Remember why the Jewish 
leaders so intent on crucifying Jesus because Jesus is a threat to them. He's stealing their glory and their influence. Why do people hate Jesus today? Because Jesus exposes sin. Jesus tells the homosexual, you're a sinner, so homosexuals don't want to hear from this man. Jesus tells the abortionist, the person who's, who's supporting that, that you're a sinner, so they don't want to hear it. Planned Parenthood doesn't want to hear about this. Jesus confronts people who are in adulterous relationships and calls them to repentance, and you should be doing this. So the, he's exposing their sin. They are bent toward really keeping the people in the dark and not allowing the truth to be taught. Jesus told the religious leaders, woe to the Pharisees. Why? Because they used religion to blind the people from the truth. And Jesus was opening people's eyes by obviously saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the light, I'm the one. So uh, they go right after what they're trying to do, saying, Jesus, you said you were the Messiah. You said you were the chosen one. Well, why don't you take yourself down the cross? See, everyone? Jesus isn't the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen one. I was right. This dead man was wrong. That was their logic in saying that. They were trying to vindicate themselves in saying, we knew this man wasn't the Messiah. So that's very important that we understand why these words are being said are spoken this way. Verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him. Now the soldiers here, these would be the Roman soldiers. So remember, these aren't religious folks, but they mocked him too. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Of course, they didn't believe that. Where did they get that phrase on the king of the Jews? In John's account, the Bible says in three different languages, the, the word king of the Jews, your charge had to be written above your name. So it said king of the Jews. So obviously uh, everybody's making fun of the man. A Roman man standing right there said, well, look, you're the king of the Jews. Why don't you save yourself? So the mockery continues from even the soldiers going on. An inscription was written above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals in one of the other gospels accounts the Jewish people were offended by that statement. They approached, they approached Pilate and said, don't put, he is the king of the Jews, but he claims or he said he is the king of the Jews. And that was the one thing Pilate put his foot down on and said, what is written is written. So finally, at one point, Pilate said, I'm going to leave this statement here that says I am the king of the, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now look at this. This is what we're talking about. This is how... Someone got saved here on the cross. Even on the cross, at a place of crucifixion, life can be um, obtained. We know even at the point of death. This is why senior adult ministry is so important. This is why going and uh, visiting folks and sharing the gospel with folks who've received uh, death sentences and they're maybe in hospice care and they don't have very long to live in their life, maybe have cancer, this is why it's important that we go and tell folks about Jesus. Listen, every time you visit someone, if they've only been given a few weeks or a few days to live, you need to take advantage of that time and tell them about Jesus because these words give hope. I'll never forget. This happened to me about seven or eight years ago. 
Someone wanted me to visit their family member and wanted me to talk to them about their relationship with the Lord. And I told them, I knew there was a lot. I had already been over there to visit them, and it was a circus. There were people everywhere. And I believe the devil, a lot of folks go and hang out with folks who are ill, but there's so much commotion going on. TV's going on, radio's going on, iPad's going off. Everybody and their brother's serving food. And you can't even have a spiritual, godly conversation with them because you've got to get rid of all the junk going on. I said, I'll cut you a deal. I'll come visit again because I've already been. And I can't even talk to them because dogs jumping all over you say, I'll come over there, but I want to come over there when no one is there. I want to be alone with the person. I want to turn off the TV and get rid of all the other people so we can have a spiritual, godly conversation about their salvation. And that happened. I had the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But you literally had to get out. Remember when Jesus went and the dead girl in the upper room was sick and they wanted Jesus to come heal her? And they, all these people were playing music and starting, the morning was already stopping, uh, going on with this young girl who had died. And what happened was Jesus walked in the room and says, why don't all of you leave? Like, we need to get out. Listen, gospel ministry. You want to share the gospel with someone in their latter days? At a time when they've only been given a few days or a few weeks? You need to really make sure there's no other distraction. The devil uses distractions to prevent people from getting saved. When you go visit your dying friend or family member of cancer, and you want to talk to them about the Lord, make sure you're alone and get rid of everything else. I have learned, you show up to visit someone, and you want to just have a, you want to really talk to them about their relationship with the Lord, guys, you just show up. You bring your Bible and you just pull up a chair and you sit there and have a Christ-centered conversation about their relationship with, about the Lord. John 3.16 will save someone. If they read that Bible verse, if they respond to Jesus, if they believe in Jesus and repent and turn to Him, even at their last days, they can be saved. You say, how do you do that? How do I know this, preacher? We're about to see it right here. We're about to see a John 3.16 salvation occur. We're about to see someone literally on their deathbed with minutes remaining in their life give their life to the Lord. All right? Follow, this is an important Bible verse here. Follow along your Bible. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals, so we got a criminal over here, hanging there, began to yell insults at him. You know, when someone's piling on, it's easy for everybody to pile on. We got the Jews piling on Jesus. They're mocking him. Now I got the old Romans piling on Jesus. Even the old other criminal over here, he decides I'm going to get into action and I'm going to start making fun of Jesus. So that's what he does. He starts insulting Jesus. And he says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. I mean, here I am dying on the cross. Might as well let's get down and get saved. Why do we need to be up here dying? When Jesus, you can save me. And look what happens. But the other one answers, so this is the conversation going on at the cross. We've got one now making fun of Jesus. The other guy hears this conversation. He jumps in the conversation. He speaks up to the Lord. He defends Jesus while he's dying. He says, but the other one answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
He just preached a sermon about Jesus on the cross. He said, you know what? Don't you fear God, criminal over there? You know, we deserve this. We're, we deserve to die. But this man here, he didn't do anything wrong. And then he turned. So he, this faraway man is rebuking this man. Then he's going to turn to Jesus. And look what he says. This is salvation right here. He says, Jesus, verse 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Did this man pray a prayer to be saved? Did this man say, uh, did this man get baptized? No. This man looked at Jesus and acknowledged that Jesus had a kingdom and asked for Jesus to remember him. He's, he's confessing Christ right there. He's acknowledging Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus answers this man. Notice he's not answering any of these other folks. He doesn't even care about these other mockers. He looks at that man over there and he said to him, Truly I tell you, today, you know why he said today? Because these guys don't have much, much life left. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That man next to Jesus on the cross was saved. And he asked Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. That man never was baptized. That is the only unbaptized person we ever see in the Bible. He confessed Christ right there, and Jesus saved him. And when we go to heaven, we will see the thief on the cross. Of, 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 this, of this crucifixion scene, two out of three people who died went to heaven, and one went to hell. Jesus obviously went to heaven, and the man next to Jesus, who confessed him as Messiah there in his kingdom, he went to heaven. And the other one who mocked him, he did not go to heaven. And they went to heaven that day. On Good Friday, they all went to heaven. Or two out of three went to heaven. And Jesus describes heaven as paradise. Now, when you're on the cross dying and you're bleeding, you're obviously in agonizing pain, thinking about paradise might be challenging, but Jesus there is talking about later that day, they will be in heaven. I want to tell you what we, what we learn. When we die, you know immediately, not next week, next year, immediately, you either go to heaven or hell. How do you know that? Jesus says, today you will go to heaven, paradise. That man got saved right there on the cross with just probably minutes of life left, not very much time. Jesus affirmed his salvation there on the cross. Deathbed salvations are certainly possible. As long as someone has life, they can trust and believe in the Lord. As long as people are living, we have a responsibility of communicating the gospel with them. Do you know in Sunday school, you know, I teach the young adult Sunday school class, and if you're using the Bible Studies for Life material, we talked about this this morning, if you remember, if you're in a class that uses it. And Jesus told a story about the strong man who goes into a house and he ties up. This is in Matthew chapter 10. And he ties up the man there who's keeping him in prison. 
and he hauls off the possession. That's an illustration of biblical salvation. When someone gets saved, what's happening is we are delivering them from someone who has them enslaved. The devil has possessions there in Matthew chapter 10. What we do, the gospel, we go to someone. We, Jesus ties up the strong man, the strong man is Satan, and delivers people to heaven. Meaning lost people, when people are born into the world, by default they're going to hell. Or until they reach age of accountability. Until they're held accountable for their sins. They don't have a default. It is it just automatically everybody going to heaven. That's universalism. The Bible speaks against that. By default, people are, are separated from God. They're born into sin. And what happens is salvation is tying up the strong man, the devil, and hauling off his possessions. At the cross, that is what happens. When someone gets saved, when you lead someone to Christ, even at the last minute, you are delivering them out of darkness. They are stepping into the light. This is why at whatever age, it's tempting. A lot of folks just assume senior adults are saved, but they're not. Just because someone has lived a long time does not mean they're automatically going to heaven. There is very important ministry in sharing the gospel with folks who are terminally ill. It's important that we, when you hear about someone that's only been given a short time left, Bell should go off that you need to talk to them about their relationship with the Lord. Jesus did that with this man on the cross. It's a blessing to be able to share the gospel with no matter what the age of, of someone that we have here that can get saved. Keep going here in your Bible. Verse 44, the death of Jesus. Look what's happened when Jesus died. Now it was about noon at 12 o'clock. So remember Jesus here. He was nailed on a cross at 9 a.m. So the first three hours were on a cross. That's when we have the conversation. That's when we get mocked. That's when this man next to Jesus also gets saved. But at noon something happens at 12 o'clock. Darkness came over the whole land until 3 o'clock. At 3 o'clock is when the afternoon sacrifice would be occurring at the temple. So that's when... Right there on Passover day, when they would, the high priest would go into the temple in the Holy of Holies and make that offering at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the, <clears throat> the reason why the sun fell is to remind everybody that God's son, God, is dying on a cross. It's now dark. And it says the sun has fell in verse 45. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. What this was, this was the curtain that separated the, the place of the, the holy of the place the holy place that's where the people they would go uh, on a daily basis and make their offering but there was a curtain there from the very far back section called the holy of holies and that would have been where the ark of the covenant would have been kept but remember in Jesus's time the ark of the covenant was already gone but when the temple was originally built and developed by by God there with Solomon the Holy of Holies, once a year, they would go back into this Holy of Holies and make an atonement 
And th what would have happened is this would have been the time they would have been back there at 3 o'clock. So the curtain was torn from top to bottom at 3 p.m. This is important because no longer do we have to go into the temple and make a sacrifice. Jesus is that sacrifice. That's why the curtain is torn. You don't need a curtain anymore. There's no more holy of holies that need to be built in churches. It's not necessary. Jesus conquered that with his death. His death was sufficient for that. And look what happens here. Jesus calls out. These are his last words. Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust or I commit my spirit. Jesus is giving his life back to God. That's what's occurring here. Saying this, he breathed his last. Jesus chose to die. It wasn't that Jesus couldn't hang on the cross anymore and make it just a few more breaths. He couldn't just quite push out anymore. He chose to die at 3 p.m. during the afternoon sacrifice at the temple. Jesus was the sacrifice at that exact time. The curtain is torn. Matthew's account says an earthquake occurred. There's darkness all over the land. That's what's occurring at this point. And look what happens here after Jesus dies. The centurion, this is the Roman soldier guard here, he saw what happened. And look at this. He begins to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. All the crowds that gathered for this for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chest, meaning they didn't quite understood what happened. Like, something just happened. This man died, the curtain tore, it was pitch black dark outside in the middle of the day. This was strange. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood there at a distance, watching these things. They're processing, thinking, what just occurred here? They might not completely understood, understood what occurred. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't understand that he was that sacrifice for the Jewish as well as for all of the world. Now look what occurs. Jesus is now dead. So this is when all of a sudden our secret disciples come alive. Do you know what I do? I wonder if we have secret disciples today in church. A secret disciple is someone who lives among the Pharisees, someone who lives among sinful people, but secretly, they, they're believers in Jesus, meaning they're there. And we probably have lots of secret disciples, people who agree with the Bible, but they don't really speak up for the Bible, people who love the Lord, but they really aren't bold in, in their faith, but they do believe and they're, they're followers of the Lord. So we're about to see a couple of secret disciples appear. And Jesus is now dead, so you can come out of the closet. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin. So, remember who the Sanhedrin was. Jesus just, uh, that night before, the midnight, that night before, he was before the Sanhedrin, and he was right there in that room with all these other Jewish men who were trying to kill Jesus. But this man here, in verse 51... It says about him who had not agreed with their plan and action. So he was a guy that he didn't vote yes. Say there were 20 folks. We know two of them voted no. So it might be what, 18 to 2. Joseph here, Joseph of Arimathea, 
He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Now Jesus is dead. He can come out and, and make his move. It says he approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock where no one had been placed. This man was a wealthy man. God raised up this man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of that Sanhedrin. And he had apparently a tomb very close by that no one had ever used. And he approached Jesus, or approached Pilate, says, I like that body. And he came, and he got the body. We know in John's account of this, there was another man with him named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was also a man of the Sanhedrin. He approached Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and that's where we get John 3.16. The most famous conversation in the Bible came with a member at nighttime with a man from the Sanhedrin, from the ruling council that executed Jesus. And John's account of this says that Nicodemus prepared with spices 75 pounds of myrrh and spices, Jesus' body. So what happened here, Joseph of Arimathea was the most famous of all undertakers. You know why he's the most famous undertaker? He buried Jesus. Every funeral home you should ever walk in, you should walk in, there should be a picture of Joseph of Arimathea right there because he did something very important. He buried Jesus. Just like John the Baptist, and every baptistry should be John the Baptist. Why? He baptized God. He baptized Jesus. These two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, God rose up these secret disciples to take this man off the cross and put him in a brand new tomb, and they prepared his body. Jesus received a wealthy man's burial. He wasn't just tossed in. He was buried properly. Very, they, 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 they showed great respect. You know, in the Bible, we didn't have cremation. In the Bible, you buried the dead. Jewish custom today, you bury the dead. Jesus received a burial right there. And um, you know, that's why you go, I've talked about before, if you ever go out in the, in the country, in a country cemetery, all the graves are facing east. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 24, it says Jesus will come, come again, and you, the graves will split open, and Jesus will come from the east. So if you ever go out in the country, old-timey cemeteries are all facing east, so the dead in Christ will rise right there facing Jesus. In Moreland, Georgia, all the old cemeteries there, and they're filled with them, every single grave, I mean, it's crazy, you pull in, and the graves are all sideways. And you think, why is the graves are sideways? Because they're all facing east. Wherever east is, is they're going to face them that way. Old timey graves. Because there, there was a, when you're buried, you're literally, you're anticipating Jesus Christ's second coming to be re received your final glorified body. Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus received a proper burial. He was honored that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus honored Jesus. This is why we should honor the dead as well. This is why we have uh, funeral services. This is why we have visitations. You're honoring the dead. These men do this. So this is a good thing that occurred right here. It says here that they took, he took it down. He wrapped it in fine linen, verse 53, and placed it in a tomb, cut into the rock, where no one had been placed. 
It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Sabbath would begin at sun, sunset on Friday night. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how the body was placed. So they're in the background. They're watching these men bury Jesus in the tomb, and they roll a stone and a rock right there in front of it. So I, don't, I want you to understand what they were going to do. It says they returned. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. The women were also going to, they were planning on coming back to Jesus' body and put spices and perfumes because Nicodemus had already done that. And you say, Dan, why didn't they walk up and help? I want you all to understand this, this scenario. These women were on the background. These men were, they were part of the Jewish ruling council, Sanhedrin. They were pulling the body down. You probably still had the Roman guards just making sure the body is getting buried right there. And they were kind of still scared because these men, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, they were probably wealthy men, had a lot of influence, and they had the authority from Pilate to pull the body down. These women didn't have that authority to come over there. They were just standing on the side thinking, I'll come back later and I'll help anoint his body. So I want you to understand that if this is Friday night, probably 6 o'clock, Jesus is getting buried right before sunset on Friday night. So in verse 56, don't miss this, they're planning on, the Bible indicates, coming back later and preparing his body for burial. It was anointing it with spices. When could they have done that? They couldn't do it on Saturday because that's the Sabbath. These women are the ones who were coming back very early on Sunday morning. And they find the meet the risen Savior. They had great intentions. They wanted to help prepare his body. And they, these were the ladies that were the first ones to see the risen Savior. And it says here in verse, very end of verse 56. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. They even, I want you to think about what just happened. Jesus just died on a cross. We had to hurry up and quickly prepare his body, get him, in a, get him in the grave, and close the tomb. And then we couldn't do anything, because in the Bible times, you were not allowed, period, to work on the Sabbath. So you just went home and kind of waited. It's Saturday now, so we'll just wait. And that, they honored the Sabbath, even with Jesus, in the grave. And what's powerful about this is on the resurrection morning, the first ones to see that we see meeting risen Jesus are these women who are showing up to prepare the spices and honor his body. Now this story here, how this all ties in with us, is we see six types of commitments. I'm going to go through this in 30 seconds. This is what we see. I want you to look at this, and we're going to end on this. This is the commitment here in your bulletin insert. We see it's the crucifixion. Look at how committed people were during this entire scripture passage we just read. People during the uh, crucifixion and well as the burial, these people were committed folks. There wasn't any least amount of salvation going on. Number one, these soldiers were committed to crucifying Jesus. If Pilate ordered Jesus to be crucified, these soldiers had to make sure this man was dead. There was a commitment to making sure that they... Jesus was dead. And Jesus even prayed for them. They didn't even know what they were doing, but they were committed to seeing Jesus' death. Number two, one criminal, he was committed to defending Jesus on the cross. And he got saved. 
He, he spoke up. Finally, someone spoke up for Jesus. Number three, Jesus was committed to dying. He had to choose to breathe his last at exactly 3 o'clock. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just happenstance. This was God's plan for him to die at this point. Jesus chose to die. He gave his life back to God. Look at this. Joseph of Arimathea, the best undertaker ever to live. He was committed to the body of Jesus. He wanted to honor Jesus on the cross with a brand new tomb. Nicodemus shows up out of the woods too and starts preparing his body. That would be like today honoring him with flowers. This would be, we're, we're showing our respects to the Lord. Number five, the women were committed. They weren't allowed to help prepare the body, but they saw where that tomb was and they thought we're going to be back on Sunday morning, first thing in the morning, and we're going to help prepare Jesus' body. We want to show our respect. So these women are committed with their spices and perfumes to Jesus. And not only that, the disciples are committed in verse 56 to honoring the Sabbath. We all stop when Jesus is in the grave and remember the Sabbath. Now we look at this entire section and you see incredible commitment to Jesus. You see commitment across the board to everybody here has a purpose. Now for us, answering the question, what is the least amount we can do to follow the Lord, to go to heaven? And the, question, the answer to that is there's not a least amount. If you're asking the question, you're already wrong. Jesus is all about commitment. We commit all to the Lord. Every single one of these people are committed to doing to what they're doing. And our commitment tonight, and what Christ is calling for you to do, especially this Easter week, you need to examine your commitment to the Lord. Are you committed to seeing people saved? If Jesus is right there, if you were that one, next to Jesus on the cross dying, would you speak up in defense and say, hey man, you don't need to be mocking Jesus. We deserve our punishment, but this man doesn't. Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. That man was saved in his last, last minutes of life. We see all around here committed folks to the Lord. And tonight I'm asking you that. Are you committed to Jesus? Are you committed this Easter? Are you committed to seeing God work through you and through our church? I'm going to close this in prayer, and we're going to have an invitation to respond to the gospel. God, I thank you for this commitment. I thank you for your words right here. I thank you that we see the commitment from the women. We see the commitment here from the executioners. We see the commitment from Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, how they step up, and they're committed to your body. Lord, help us commit ourselves first and foremost to you and help us commit ourselves to share the gospel of advancing your kingdom to other folks who do not know you. Lord, lead us to a thief on the cross. Someone, even in his last breath, the last few, few minutes, can surrender their life to you. Even if they can't even get baptized, they can commit themselves to you while dying. Jesus, I pray during this invitation that we never let an invitation go by. Maybe there's someone here who's never received baptism. Steve on the cross was the only man who's never been baptized. And, but if, we can, if we're not nailed to the cross, we can be baptized. 
Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to service, especially this Easter. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. We're going to close our service here with an invitation. David Dill is going to lead us in our song. I'm going to invite everyone to stand. I'll be standing down front waiting for you to respond. Number 544. Number 544. Wednesday night, I hope to see you here at 6 o'clock. We're having our Jewish Seder service. It's going to be a fantastic night. It's going to be a great blessing. I know you'll enjoy that. So that's, I'll see you all again at 6 p.m. The storm clouds are rolling in. It's about to be pouring rain in a few minutes with that. So we will see you Wednesday.